This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for June 1st, 2018. In this week's episode, we'll have an overview on using parental controls to keep your children's internet browsing safe. Plus, Apple has released another round of operating system updates. We'll talk about the latest new features. A listener asks about the type of drive to use for backup. A pretty simple fix can prevent a new Russian malware attack. And there's a new crypto jacking hack to watch out for. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. So did you update all your iOS devices, Josh? Oh my goodness. It's another one of those weeks, isn't it? Apple releases an update, and you've got to update everything. It was for iPhone and iPad, and it was for Apple TV, and it was for Apple Watch, and it was for HomePod. Well, yes, almost everything. I, I noticed that they did not release, actually, a Mac OS update. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, I was a bit surprised, because one of the marquee features in the update is messages in the cloud, right. which now means that you store all of your messages, your iMessages and the SMSs that go into the Messages app. You store them in the cloud, so when you get a message on your iPhone... It will automatically go to your iPad if you turn the feature on in the messages settings. But even better than that, when you delete a message from your iPhone or a conversation, it deletes on all your devices. Now, I have my devices all set to get all my messages. And, you know, all those text messages you get from Amazon or from a company sending you a a two-factor authentication code or you just ordered from us. Here's a survey. How... How likely are you to recommend our company on a scale of 1 to 10? And I delete them as I go on on my iPhone, and eventually I get to my iPad, and there's 50 or 100 messages that I have to delete manually. So this is a, a, a good thing to have. Yeah, this is it's, it's really interesting concept, and they have a, a little explanation of how the encryption on this works and how they're protecting you. And we'll have a link, of course, in the show notes to, to where you can read more about this. It says that the messages in iCloud uses end-to-end encryption, which is kind of interesting. However, they say that if you have iCloud backup turned on, a copy of the key protecting your messages is included in your backup, meaning Apple has the key so Apple can decrypt your quote-unquote end-to-end encrypted messages. So that's kind of interesting. It does clarify, though, that if you turn off iCloud backup, a new key is generated on your device to protect feature messages and is not stored by Apple. So that's something to to be aware of with this uh, so-called end-to-end encryption feature. Well, you don't have to use iCloud backup to use this feature. This is an iCloud syncing feature, such as syncing your calendar, your contacts, etc. It is separate from iCloud backup. So what's interesting is that they've released this for iOS, but they haven't released it for the Mac. When they have these staggered releases for key features, it gets really confusing. Yeah, because currently there's no way to do these messages in the cloud on macOS, not even the latest version of macOS. So presumably Apple is preparing to release a corresponding macOS update. And in fact, that might be why Apple has not said anything at all about the security content of these new updates. There are two conditions under which Apple might not reveal what vulnerabilities have been fixed. One is that there's an embargoed security bug, meaning something like Meltdown Inspector, something that is globally affects many, many products and hasn't been announced to the public yet. Or two, 
there's there's one of their products that's not been fixed yet and they're waiting to reveal what's been fixed in the other products because they don't want people hammering on the product that hasn't been fixed yet, which in this case seems to be Mac OS. Right. And when you consider that iOS and Mac OS are b- below the interface, they're relatively similar. So most of the time when we have security updates, if it's a feature, let's say that affects WebKit, which is the the framework that displays web pages, it's going to affect iOS as well as Mac OS. Exactly. So the fact that Apple hasn't issued the security info means that we're due for another update. Of course, the Worldwide Developer Conference starts on Monday, and it's probable that they're going to be releasing a Mac update with some new feature that hasn't been announced yet at that point. This is the day that they talk about the next version of the operating system at the end of the day or... Sometime during the day, beta versions will be available to developers. But sometimes they use the WWDC to announce a new app, a new product, a new feature. And everything suggests that they're going to do this on Monday. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. WWDC is always an opportunity for for Apple to roll out new features um, or at least announce them so that developers can start um, updating their products to support those new features. Well, one feature that they announced almost a year ago at WWDC 2017 was finally released in iOS 11.4, and that's AirPlay 2. AirPlay is the technology they use to stream audio and video, let's say from an iPhone or an iPad to an AirPlay speaker, to a HomePod, to an Apple TV, or video as well to an Apple TV. And they announced this one year ago at the WWDC. They announced that it would be ready in the fall. And then when the HomePod came out, well, the HomePod, of course, was late, and they announced it would be ready soon, and it's finally released. We're not going to talk too much about AirPlay 2. I think one of the more interesting elements is that you can now combine two HomePods into a stereo pair. So instead of the single HomePod being mono, you dedicate one to the left channel, one to the right channel. I'll link in the show notes to the review I wrote for the Intego Max Security blog of the HomePod. And I have to say... I set up a stereo pair. I got a second HomePod yesterday and set up a stereo pair, and I am impressed. So my initial review was somewhat negative because the device on its own as a mono speaker wasn't as good as it could have been. But hearing the two of them together, I think they should have waited to release the HomePod until AirPlay 2 was available. Well, that sounds cool. I can't wait to read more about that. So we got an email from Mark who was asking us about SSDs, and he reminded us about the show we did about which hard drive to choose for your Mac, and I'll link to that in the show notes. And he says he's been checking out SSDs, and he's a little bit confused. He's not sure what to get for backups. Well, Mark, I wouldn't recommend using an SSD for backup. For about $100, you can get a four terabyte self-powered hard drive, a, a portable one. It's relatively small. It's about the size of a deck of cards. You plug it into your Mac, and you can back up. It's not as fast as an SSD, but it's four terabytes. For about the same price, you're going to get maybe a 250 gigabyte SSD, plus you need an enclosure. SSDs are really important for your startup volume because they make the operating system load faster. They make your apps load faster. But for backups, it's really, it's not worth the expense. I've always recommended using hard drives for backups because you just get so much more space, so much more bang for your buck, as people say. What about you, Josh? What do you think? I definitely agree that that SSDs are not ideal for for backups. Um, They are fast, so it is possible to have an external SSD drive. You know, you could hook it up to your machine using USB or something like that. And it will be 
probably faster than backing up to a spinning drive. However, you're, as you mentioned, the space is going to be limited. Another consideration there, it depends on what exactly you're backing up and how long you expect to keep that backup. If you're trying to back something up and just have it last the maximum number of years and you want to keep this for future generations, you actually probably want to consider um, a high quality optical storage, something more like even uh, burning something to a DVD or something like that. But if, if you're just kind of thinking, oh, well, I want to back up my whole hard drive, you're probably better off not getting an SSD just because of, of the lack of, uh, of storage um, and going with a, a, a spinning drive instead, an external spinning drive. The only type of person I would recommend uh, an SSD to for backup is, let's say you're a professional photographer and you go out with your laptop, your MacBook Pro, and you're working on your photos and you need to have a backup with you. Then I would recommend an SSD because there are no moving parts. So if you're moving around and you drop the drive, you won't damage it. If you drop a spinning hard drive, you will damage it. That's very true. And in fact, that was one of the things that I found very shocking when Apple released the original iPod. It had a spinning drive in it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're going to be running around, jogging and stuff, and you, you've got this iPod in your pocket, and it's shaking this hard drive around. That's nuts. That's crazy. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. Let's give it to Apple. The way it worked is that the drive would spin up and it had like a five megabyte or or 10 megabyte buffer so it would read stuff into the buffer so it could play music for multiple minutes and then it would spin down very quickly yes this said i once dropped an ipod classic i think it was a 60 gigabyte while the drive was spinning and i still have it in my apple product drawer where i keep all my old apple stuff <laughs> and i can put music on this up to about 20 gigabytes. So what that means is that there's a sector damaged someplace, physically damaged, and it'll write on the first 20 gigabytes of the drive. And after that, it just stops. It just keeps spinning, trying to write until it eventually fails. There you go. So while we're on the subject of spinning hard drives, what about this Russian router malware that's out there? <laughs> well, yes, VPN filter is what it's called. I know it has nothing to do with spinning hard drives. That was just an attempt at a humorous thing. VPN filter is this Russian router malware. It's something that was really, it was kind of first talked about in mid-April, but there wasn't really a lot of detail about it yet at that time. And we'll link to a few articles from, from Ars Technica that have a lot more detail on this if you really want to dig in to um, the technical stuff and, and get a lot more information about what's been going on here. But uh, the U.S. and U.K. governments have warned that Russian hackers are mass exploiting routers in homes, governments and infrastructures. And they've announced in May, just just this past week, that at least 500,000 consumer routers all over the world have been infected with malware. But 500,000 doesn't sound like a lot of routers. Everyone who uses the internet has a router. You know, okay, so I, I think it's a pretty fair number of routers, to be honest. I mean, like, so these routers are come from major brands. So there's Linksys, Netgear, TP-Link, and, and a variety of others. These are actually pretty common router brands. And so this is one of the most interesting parts of this story, right? The FBI has recommended to people to just reboot your router because they say that at least parts of this uh, this router infection will go away if you reboot 
it won't completely clean your your router, but it, at least it'll get rid of some components that attackers are using. Okay, so here's what I don't understand. Is anyone liable to infection, or is it only people who haven't changed the default password? I have a strong password on my router. Do I have to worry? Well, if you're using a default password, there's a pretty good chance that you also have never updated the firmware on your router. And if you've never done either of those things, then you're a lot more vulnerable to attacks from outside parties that might be trying to get into your router and infect it. So first thing that you should do is reboot your router. That's, you know, that's fair. It doesn't hurt to do that. And second thing you should do is check for a firmware update. And regardless of whether there's a firmware update, you definitely want to change your router's password, the, the administration password, so that allows you to make changes and things like that. And you also want to make sure that you turn off any functionality that allows people on the WAN side, is how it might be called, or the public internet side of your router to be able to remotely connect to and do administration of your router. If you've got that feature enabled, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be infected at some point. So it's worth pointing out, you mentioned about changing the default password, because routers tend to ship with the default password. If you just Google the name of your router, you'll find web pages saying what the default password is. So obviously, hackers know this, and they use these to try and get into different routers. But what's interesting over here in the UK, and it's different in the States, your ISP sends you a router. It's not got a password admin admin. It's got a preset password that's on the box or in a card inside usually or something like that. And my router checks for updates automatically. And I think it updates itself at, you know, the wee hours of the morning. So I'm not too worried that this is going to affect me. If I reboot, what's going to happen? How do I know if I'm infected? One of these Ars Technica articles says that authorities and researchers still don't know for certain how compromised devices are initially infected. That sounds pretty scary to me. They don't know how they're affected. They don't know what we can do to fix the problem. What are all you security researchers doing? Come on, get to work. <laughs> you know, this is one of these things that's sort of an, an IoT problem, an Internet of Things problem. We have all these devices that are connected to the Internet. And when I say we, I'm really talking about manufacturers of these products either don't know how to secure them or aren't hiring the right people who know how to secure them. And when it comes to something like a router, you absolutely have to have good security. The One of the purposes of a router is to make sure that you're properly segmented, separated from the, from the in this case, the public internet. So you need, you, you should have an expectation of good security. And even some of these major manufacturers don't necessarily always do that. Yeah, these are big companies, Linksys and Netgear and QNAP. These are major companies. Right. And the other thing that people need to be aware of, too, is that if you have an older router, you may not be able to get firmware updates for it anymore because typically these manufacturers they you know they'll sell a model for a few years and you know after that they want to upsell you on the latest model oh we've got a new model that has 802.11 you know ac wave 2 and you need that because of speed and reasons well that's not necessarily <laughs> you know, that doesn't necessarily bode well for people who have an older router that may not be getting any kind of firmware updates anymore. And you will not get notified 
by the company that manufactures it that, oh yeah, we're not gonna release any more uh, security or firmware updates for your router, so you're on your own now and you might wanna upgrade to a newer product. They won't tell you that, which is awful. And and I think there should be you know laws to force companies to notify their consumers of things like this, but sadly there aren't. Well, as, as you mentioned the internet of things problem, I'm worried that my light bulbs are going to hack my refrigerator one day. <laughs> you know, we have all these devices that are connecting to the internet or the cloud in some way. And, you know, more and more of them, you know, we talked about that Amazon door lock and security camera thing. Yep. I've got a couple of smart light bulbs here in my office. I don't have much else that's smart. I mean, I've got a HomePod, an Apple Watch, and I've got Apple devices. But the more we get these smart devices, the more vulnerable we are to all of them getting hacked and being used to get into other things, and particularly for denial of service attacks, which is when a central server will send commands to a whole bunch of devices to simply try and load a website to overwhelm it. If you've got a million computers trying to attack a website, okay, that's a lot. But if you add... 10 million smart light bulbs that are trying to do the same thing, then it's easy to shut down any web service. Right, absolutely. The the bigger the the network you've got involved in a in a denial of service attack, the more devices that you have on a variety of networks, the more likely that that attack is going to be successful. Okay, so there's another one. You know, doesn't it seem like we're really talking about a lot of malware lately? Yeah. Not necessarily all Mac oriented. But there is a lot. So there's another one, a crypto miner called MS Helper that is targeting Mac OS. Can you tell me about that? This latest Mac malware is something that, strangely enough, has a background process name of MS Helper. If you were to open Activity Monitor and you see something called MS Helper, there's a chance that it could be some crypto mining malware, some something that's crypto jacking your system, that's using your processing power to mine cryptocurrency for some malicious party that somehow got this malware onto your system. We don't know exactly how this malware has been getting onto systems, but we have found it on some infected computers. And basically all it's doing is it's the typical crypto jacking, cryptocurrency mining in the background kind of thing. It's it's trying to um, to mine for Monero currency, evidently. And it's, it's just something that's going to use your processing power. So if if you notice things like your fan kind of spinning a little louder in your MacBook Pro or your iMac, there's a chance that something like this could be going on in the background. That's why you need antivirus software to scan your machine to detect if something like this is going on. And also you need an outbound firewall, as we've talked about before, so that if this process, in this case, MS Helper, is trying to connect out to the Internet to phone home to a mining server, you're going to get a warning dialog box that'll come up and say the MS Helper application is attempting to make a connection to a site on the Internet. And if you have no idea what this is, you didn't recently install anything Microsoft related, because that's what this kind of sounds like uh, with the MS part. If you don't know what this is, it's, you know, it's safe to, to block it. And that's exactly what you can do if you've got, uh, in this case, Intego Net Barrier installed. And we've mentioned in the past about some of these strange names of system services. And I'm just looking at Activity Monitor, which is a tool that shows all of the different processes that are running. A process is like a program, but many of them are things that aren't visible. And there's one called AKD, and there's one called AMFID, and then there's one called 
core duet D, and then there's one called I O U P S D. I mean, there's dozens of them. There are on my computer right now. It doesn't say how many processes are running, but I'd say there's about 200, if not more. And this is normal that all these things are running in the background. So when you see that sort of name, as you said, it sounds like Microsoft MS Helper, and they've probably had something with a similar name. The the point about using particularly an outbound firewall is that it will know what system services are running. So it won't tell you when install D is trying to make a connection, but it will tell you about things it's never heard about. And, you know, this is why Intego and other companies that make this software keep up to date on what's in the operating system to make sure you don't have to worry every time there's a question about something trying to, to make an outbound connection. You don't have to Google it to find out what it is and whether it's safe. Right, exactly. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about parental controls, how to keep your kids safe from all the dangers of the Internet. School's out and your kids will have more time than ever to spend on their favorite activities. And if those activities mean spending more unsupervised time online, you might want to consider using controls to manage your kids' computer access. And of course, Intego has you covered. You may be familiar with some of the basic parental controls offered by Apple, but Intego takes your control of security much further than that. At the Intego.com website, we've got side-by-side comparisons of Apple's built-in security and the advanced features of Intego Content Barrier. Content Barrier is a suite of software that gives you more complete parental controls for peace of mind. And now, through the end of June, you can purchase Content Barrier Secure X9 at 40% off. It's a great way to start protecting yourself and your children from harmful online content. And guarding your children's online activities is crucial when you can't always be there to protect them. With Content Barrier Secure X9, you will be. Save 40% on Intego Content Barrier Secure X9 now through the end of June and have a real safe summer. Josh, you've got kids. I do. I've got one grown-up kid, so I don't worry anymore about what he does on the Internet, even though I may not agree with everything he does on the Internet. But I remember when he was young, and of course the Internet was far less complex than it is now. He's 27, so... Back when he was 10 years old, we didn't have much you could do on the Internet. But now there's so much. Do you worry about using parental controls to keep your kids from accessing certain content on the Internet? I do use parental controls. Yeah, I I think it's something that parents should consider. And a lot of times people just kind of think of, you know, do I want to keep my kid from getting to, to pornography, right? That's like that's like the typical thing that people think of when they think of parental controls. Yeah, but parental controls really does more than that. There's a lot of things that you can do, even with Apple's um, built-in parental controls in, in macOS. For example, you can set a time limit on when an account can be logged in. So one of the things that, that I do with, uh, with a computer that my kids use is I set a window of time so that for example, from 9.30 p.m. to 6 a.m., that computer can't be logged into on the kid's account. So they can't play Minecraft. Right. They can't get up in the middle of the night and start playing video games or who knows what. And do they complain about this? Or have you gotten them used to the fact that they don't control things and that you have the administrator's password? 
Um, yeah, it's it's not too bad so far. I do have a 12 year old, so I'm kind of anticipating that I might start getting a little more pushback. But most of the time, it's not too bad. Um, there have been a couple of times where you know he's up late doing homework or something like that, and I'll have to extend the time window a little bit and put in my password, you know, and pick a number of minutes that I want to add on to his time for the day, which is okay. I, I don't mind that. He finds it a little annoying when that happens, but frankly, we don't want him staying up that late to do homework anyway. So I, I, I think it's, I think it's a good thing to, to set reasonable expectations and reasonable limits on, on technology use like this. Yeah. And parental controls can do a lot. And, and of course there's a difference, as you said, between what's available by default on the Mac and what's in Intego Content Barrier X9. They all do similar things with time limitations and blocking specific types of sites Content Barrier goes a little bit further. It keeps a log of what your children are seeing. And while you don't want to necessarily snoop on your kids, sometimes it's useful to know where they're going just in case to make sure that they're not ending up on websites that could that could be tricking them, that, that might be Disney.mouse instead of Disney.com, for example. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's there's so many different <laughs> internet threats and uh and so parental controls really in in the modern era i think parental controls is really developed into something that um is is a really good idea from a variety of perspectives you want to make sure that you're protecting your kids um from chatting with somebody who's not really who they say they are um so there's there's a lot of reasons that you might want to implement controls like this yeah and in fact that's another feature that's in content barrier it's called the anti-predator it monitors chats for specific phrases that might be predatory because kids are going to chat they're going to use snapchat and messages and maybe not slack but they're going to use all sorts of instant messaging apps and it's very hard to monitor those and you don't really want to block them because this is how the kids communicate with each other. So it's really useful to have that kind of feature that can sort of flag when something's going on that just doesn't seem right. One of the differences between parental controls on the Mac and Intego Content Barrier is that the time limits on the Mac just limit total usage of the computer, and you can set weekday and weekend. Intego Content Barrier lets you limit internet access, which means you may have a kid who's doing homework, but you don't want him playing Minecraft. So you might want to set up a limitation that he can only use the internet for three hours a day or something like that. One thing that I find interesting is, you know, anytime any company or country has tried to limit access, as you said, pornography is the main thing they try to block. And every time they've tried to do this, there are always problems. They block legitimate sites about sexual health. They block science sites. You know, we have birds in our gardens that are called tits. There are blue tits and yellow tits, and there are tits flying all over the place in my garden. And if a kid's into birds and looks these up on the web, and the parental controls block it, and they've got homework to write about birds, that's a bit of a problem. So Apple's terminology in the parental controls preference pane is try to limit access to adult websites. And this is really essential to understand that it is not perfect. You cannot block access to everything. These controls work based on keywords essentially specific words that they're looking for, the way a spam filter works. Another element you might want to control, and this is really simple, is the stores. In the parental controls on the Mac, there's a stores tab, and it you can block the iTunes store, the iBook store, and you can restrict content. So you can restrict movies and TV shows to specific ages. Apps may have content ratings as well. You can block books with explicit sexual content. You have a lot of options in terms of that. So 
on the one hand, you might want to keep kids from getting R-rated movies, but you might want to also just block the store so they don't buy anything because you've entered your password and it's too much of a hassle to log out of the iTunes store all the time. Right. This is another thing that, that I regularly use both on Mac OS and iOS. There are a lot of uh, features that you can set a limitation. So let's say that you wanted to restrict content to stuff that's TVPG or a G rated movie or, or things like that. There's, there's lots of options like that, that if you're primarily getting content through the iTunes store, then that's a, a great way that Apple gives you by default to, uh, to be able to choose what level of content restriction you want to set. So on the Mac, this is a preference pane. It's in system preferences, parental controls. For some reason on iOS, they've changed the name of it and they call it restrictions. And you get there from the general settings. When you tap enable restrictions, you have to enter a passcode. On the Mac, you have to unlock the padlock. So you need to be administrator. And it gives you a number of things that you can block or allow. So you could block Safari, the camera, Siri and dictation, FaceTime, AirDrop for transferring files, CarPlay. I mean, if you're going to give your kids the key to the car, then why are you going to block CarPlay? And then after that, it stores. Um, you can prevent them from installing apps and you can prevent them from deleting apps, which is good. You know, if you've got young kids and they're playing on your iPad and they figured out that if they press and hold an icon, it wiggles and that's cool. And then there's a little X at the corner and they tap it and goes away. And you're wondering where your favorite app has gone. Uh-oh. And you can also block in-app purchases. And, and I think that's really useful because there are a lot of games for kids that are designed to trick them into spending a buck here, five bucks there for coins or or extra lives and all that. So they'll be able to play their games fine, but they're not going to be able to continue spending your money without your approval. That is absolutely true and a very good point. In fact, even on my personal iPhone, I have it set up to not allow in-app purchases because I don't want to ever accidentally purchase something with, you know when I didn't mean to. Um, one of the, the tricks that has happened before and even even in the iOS app store, there have been, you know, these fake VPN apps that charge you a hundred dollars a month or something like that. And Apple, you know, whenever they find something like this, they do a pretty good job of getting rid of it out of the app store. Anytime there's there's an in-app purchase prompt, it will ask you to either put in your, your passcode or in some cases it'll even use touch ID. If you happen to be resting your thumb there and a dialog box pops up and prompts you to, you know, for this in-app purchase of, yeah, do you want to spend $100 a month on this VPN? Sure. Yeah, great. You might accidentally allow and authorize that to start charging your credit card. And you don't want that. That's not a good idea at all. Indeed. Even if you don't have kids, have a look at some of these parental controls. And I would say more on iOS for the reasons that you just said than on the Mac. On the Mac, you always have to enter an administrator's password. I mean, you can buy something from the iTunes store with a single click, but you don't have the same concept of in-app purchases on the Mac. We'll link in the show notes to a couple of articles that have discussed parental controls over the years. We'll link to Intego Content Barrier and see if it's worth setting up some controls for your kids or for yourself. In the meantime, Josh, I'm going to go reboot my router just in case. So stay secure. Great idea. And stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. 
Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software. Intego.com.